The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The title of our sermon this evening, The Lord to the Lukewarm. The Lord to the Lukewarm. This is part one, Revelation chapter three, verses 14 through 22. So tonight, in our ongoing study of the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we come now to the last in a series of seven churches across Asia Minor addressed by the Lord of the church. Seven representative churches chosen from across Asia Minor, from among many churches in Asia Minor at the time, but these seven representative of the whole. And it's important to note, it's important to understand that not simply a representative of the first century churches there in Asia Minor, but representative of the Lord's church in every generation since then, certainly representative of churches in our own generation. So then, what is said by the Lord to the church at Laodicea is not merely addressed to that particular church in that particular location at that particular time, but is instead is instead intended for authoritative for, profitable for, useful for all the churches, uh, even churches in our own day, and in particular, our own church. The Spirit says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that is the church, the Lord's church, the church militant in every generation. Now think with me. The Lord addresses his letters to each of the churches with respect to their witness and their conduct in the midst of tribulation. Think with me about what the Lord's doing, the Lord's purpose during this time, these churches, first century Asia Minor. The Lord addresses his letters to each of those churches with respect to their witness and with respect to their conduct in the midst of tribulation. The church at Ephesus faced false teachers spreading lies. They persevered, they labored without becoming weary, and yet they had left their first love and were not faithful witnesses for Jesus Christ, and the Lord calls them to repentance. The church at Smyrna suffered tribulation, persecution, intense poverty, and the church at Smyrna was found to be faithful in the midst of her tribulation. The church at Pergamos faced persecution from without, where Satan's throne is, and also faced infiltration from within. False teachers spreading the lies of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. The church failed to deal effectively with that error through church discipline, and the Lord rebuked them. The church at Thyatira had worked diligently in the midst of tribulation, but had allowed a Jezebel in her midst to wreak havoc on the church from within. The church at Sardis had a good reputation among outsiders, had a good reputation of being alive, but lacked the fruit of a living faith in their witness for Jesus Christ and was truly found to be dead. Philadelphia faced severe persecution from the Jews. They were given an open door to the kingdom, an open door with the gospel, and they persevered under great persecution and were found to be faithful. Laodicea, finally, was comfortable. Laodicea lacked zeal. And when the church is to be a lampstand, a light in a dark place, Laodicea was tepid and found to be useless. So each of the churches, each of the churches are addressed 
regarding their witness and regarding their conduct in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of this age of tribulation. It is an age of tribulation that began in the last days. Those days began with the the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they continue now into our day. This is the age of tribulation. That tribulation coming from hostility from the world heaped upon the church from without and that tribulation, that flipsis, that pressure coming from sin and error that arose from within the church, from within their midst. And that is the same with us today. We face both persecution from without and we face difficulty from within. And the church in every generation must be prepared through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to persevere, to be faithful unto the end, to be faithful even unto death on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, whoever overcomes, I'll give to him a crown of life right? We're to be faithful in our generation. We're to be faithful in our own period of tribulation. We are the church militant. The torch has been passed to us and it's responsible. We are responsible to be faithful with it. Now that, that serves as the connection then between what the Lord says to these representative churches in the opening chapters of Revelation and what the Spirit says to all the church churches, and in particular what the Spirit says to our church. We are the church militant. We are the church in the tribulation of the last days. We are to be lampstands, lights shining in a dark place. And we are to be concerned then with our witness. We're to be concerned with our conduct in the midst of our tribulation. That's where we get instruction. That's where we get help, aid from these letters to the churches. We're to be faithful in our own conduct, faithful with our own witness in our own time of tribulation. And we take instruction. We take encouragement. We take commendation. We also take correction. We also take rebuke from these addresses to the representative churches across Asia Minor in the first century. So we have to ask the the applicational question then. How are we bearing up? How are we faring? under the tribulation of these last days. Tribulation is increasing as birth pains upon a pregnant woman, Matthew 24. They're increasing in frequency. They're increasing in severity. How are we bearing up? How will we bear up? Are we prepared to face the tribulation that is coming, the persecution that's coming? Or are we caving? Caving into the thlipsis, capitulating to the pressure or the tribulation, whether it comes from within, which is often so discouraging, so difficult, so hard, or whether that comes from without. Those who would persecute us and continue to persecute us, throwing grenades at us from over the wall, so to speak. How are we faring? Are we persevering in faith? Are we persevering in faithfulness? Or are we compromising? Are we capitulating to the the pressure? Will you obey our Lord who gave himself for his church or will you give in to the fear of man? That's a question before the church in every age, in every generation. Will you obey the Lord who gave himself in death for his bride or will we cave to the fear of man? Will you obey your boss or will you obey the head of the church? When those two come into conflict, (laughs) when you face The antagonism, when you face the hostility of the beast, who is it that you will obey? 
Who is it that you will follow? That's what we're talking about. We're talking about the antagonism and the hostility of the beast. Will you obey the government or will you obey the Lord Jesus Christ? When those two come into conflict, what will you do? Will we labor, labor in his vineyard? As we talked about this morning during the call to repentance. Or are we sitting on our laurels? Will we retreat to that which is comfortable? Uh, enjoy ourselves in our leisure, floating to heaven on flowery beds of ease while others sailed on bloody seas. Well, studying this book, studying these letters in particular, Revelation chapter 3, we're to take encouragement, we're to take exhortation from each condemnation. We're also, uh, each commendation, we're also to take correction. We're to take warning from each rebuke. And there is a severe warning for us here in the Lord's address to the church at Laodicea. We are to acknowledge that Jesus Christ, the one who himself faced suffering and death for you and I, he is sovereign and head over his church in love, and we are to prepare ourselves to face the tribulation of our own time in faith, through faith in him. And we are called to overcome. We're called to be overcomers. To him who overcomes, I will give the crown of life. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I sit on my father's throne. Our faith, our faith will be vindicated. It'll be vindicated through our perseverance. It'll be vindicated by the Lord Jesus Christ and it'll be vindicated in judgment upon the wicked. And Christ will soon return to see to it. He's going to see to that business. So let us persevere in faith. Just as surely as he received a kingdom at the end of his perseverance, just as surely as he received the kingdom at the end of his own suffering, we will certainly receive the kingdom with him at the end of ours. So this book is a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that revelation of the Lord is to encourage his church, to exhort his church, to exhort his beloved bride in the midst of her suffering. That's what this book is for, to encourage the bride as she looks forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's not a curiosity about future events, right? We're going to learn about future events, but it's not some bookshelf curiosity about future events. This is an encouragement to the Lord's church in our day. And that brings us now to the last of the Lord's addresses to these opening, uh, in the opening chapters of this book, to these seven churches in Asia Minor, and that is the Lord's address to the church at Laodicea. How did Laodicea fare in her own response to difficulty, to the thlipsis, to the pressure, to her duress? How did the church at Laodicea respond to the pressure? How did she conduct herself in tribulation? Now, our text involves a message to the church that is in Laodicea. Laodicea is one of three churches very near one another in the Lycus Valley east of Ephesus in Asia Minor, now modern Turkey. The churches were Laodicea in the Lycus Valley east of uh, Ephesus. The churches were Laodicea, Herapolis, and Colossae. Colossae was a church that received a New Testament letter from Paul. That's the, the letter to the Colossians, right? Uh, we see Laodicea mentioned in that letter several times, um, Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. And from Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, it's apparent that Paul had never been to these churches, had never visited the churches in the Lycus Valley, but Paul prayed for them fervently. We see that in Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul loved, cared for these churches, and he cared for them from afar, uh, not unlike 
the way that many of us do with the church plants that we have. Uh, we care for the church. We love those families in New York, in Guatemala, in Dahabon. Uh, we love them. And many of us, we pray for them fervently, pray for them frequently out of our care for them. That is doing labor for that church. <laughs> that is loving that church. Paul labored. He's never been to these churches, but he labored for them uh, from afar, love them from afar, so to speak. And from Colossians chapter 1, verse 7, from Colossians chapter 4, verse 13, we know that Paul didn't plant these churches, but it's likely that Epaphras did plant these churches, and they would have circulated letters amongst themselves that were written. So if the church um, at Coloss received a letter, that would have been circulated among these three in the Lycus Valley, including a non-canonical letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Laodicea, and we know that from a reading of Paul's letter to the Colossians. The area in and around Laodicea shares some common ground with us in our own circumstance, uh, shares common ground with us in our modern context in the sense that Laodicea was exceedingly wealthy, exceedingly wealthy. The land around the Lycus Valley was very fertile. Laodicea became the financial and the political center for the whole region, the banking center for the whole region, uh, known, oddly enough, for dyeing wool. They raised a rare black wooled sheep <laughs> in the Lycus Valley. And so Laodicea uh, began, uh, became known for its wool, uh, for dyeing wool, for a bustling uh, textile industry, for a fashion industry. You could get all the latest fashions in Laodicea. It's like the Paris of the Lycus Valley, right? Uh, there was a famous medical center, famous medical center in Laodicea. This is what wealth brings you, right? Famous medical center in Laodicea that focused primarily on ophthalmology of all things. Cutting edge eye care for the day was to be found in Laodicea. Thousands, thousands would flock to the hot springs in nearby Herapolis for the medicinal benefits of the hot spring water. And as we'll see, as we'll see, prosperity can be a snare, a deadly snare, a deceptive snare, a test not easily passed. Now, our human author, the Apostle John, in the Spirit, on the Lord's Day, he's been commanded to write the things which he sees and hears, and John hears the Lord begin his address to the church at Laodicea in verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write. In other words, to that heavenly being, exemplifying the connection between the earthly and the heavenly, between the, the church on earth and the Lord in the throne room of heaven, Write, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. That's as far as we're going to get tonight. We're going to uh, consider this text over a couple of weeks. The Lord opens this address to the church at Laodicea with a threefold description of his person. He is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. We're accustomed to hearing that first word, aren't we? We're used to the word amen. We use the word amen to confirm something is true, something is good. We respond to the word of God by saying amen. We give it an affirmation with, it's almost as if our spirit were witnessing with his spirit, his spirit witnessing with our spirit that we're children of God. We affirm the word of God with a hearty amen when we agree and we see it as good. 
And so it's certainly appropriate, it's certainly appropriate for the Lord Jesus Christ to use the word as a confirmation for his own character. He is the great amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. All of the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, what? Amen. Amen to the glory of God. He is the great amen. Now it's fascinating that there are only two places in all the Bible where the word amen refers to a name. One place is here, Revelation chapter 3. The other is in Isaiah 65. And I want you to turn there with me. Isaiah 65. And that word, that name, amen, a reference to Yahweh. Now the Lord, in these letters to the churches in Revelation, the Lord has made frequent reference to Isaiah already. But let's turn here to Isaiah 65 and see if we can shed some light on our text. Isaiah 65. In Isaiah 65, really in that context, Isaiah is pleading with God in repentance. Israel has become like those who've never called on the name of the Lord. They've they've become like the Gentile nations around them. And Isaiah pleads, Lord, we are all like an unclean thing. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And Isaiah asks the Lord in context, will you restrain yourself in the face of these offenses? And God responds by proclaiming he will not restrain himself in the face of these offenses. God responds by proclaiming the inclusion of the Gentiles in his redemptive plans and purposes, in his salvation. And he pronounces judgment upon unbelieving Jews. Look at Isaiah 65, verse 1. Verse 1, I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people. God says, rising early and going late, right? Who who walk in a way that is not good. I've stretched out my hands to them according to their own thoughts, a people who provoke me to anger continually to my face, who sacrifice in gardens, burn incense on altars of brick, who sit among the graves, spend the nights in the tombs, who eat swine's flesh, the broth of abominable things is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. These, these rebellious people, They are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Now, we don't have to guess at a proper interpretation of this text. And why is that? Because Paul references this text in Romans chapter 10. Turn to Romans, keep your finger in Isaiah 65. We're going to come back there and look at Romans chapter 10. And look at chapter 10, beginning in verse 14. In Romans 10, 14, Paul's going to interpret these verses for us. But Paul speaks of Israel's rejection of the gospel. And Paul speaks here of the inclusion of the Gentiles. He tells us exactly what Isaiah 65 is referring to. Whoever, whoever, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Is salvation for the Jews? Not only. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God has planned from the beginning to include the nations. Look at verse 14. 
How then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, and we're talking about preaching the gospel to the Gentile nations and the Gentiles being included in God's redemptive plans and purposes, Gentiles flooding into the Lord's people, flooding into the Lord's church. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But, verse 16, They have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I'm really looking forward to getting into this text in a couple of years when we get to Romans chapter 10. It's going to be, we're going to really be blessed by going through that text together. Verse uh, 18, but I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. They've heard their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. Even Moses, that's Deuteronomy chapter 32, prophesies of the inclusion of the Gentiles all the way back in the Pentateuch. But Isaiah is a very bold. Why is Isaiah bold in what he says? Because he's going to say this to Jews. He's going to say this to the Jews. Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. Israel is going to be judged and God will be found by the Gentiles. But to Israel, he says, All day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. It is as though God shakes off the dust of his feet and turns through the Apostle Paul to the Gentiles and preaches the gospel. Do you see? The inclusion of the Gentiles. Back in Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah 65. So God says to the Jews in verse 12, Isaiah 65, verse 12, when I called you, You did not answer. When I spoke, you did not hear, but did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. Therefore, verse 13, thus says the Lord God, and he says this to to Israel, behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. That's judgment. My servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Behold, my servants shall sing for joy of heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart and wail for grief of spirit. You shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen, for the Lord God will slay you and call his servants by another name so that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the Amen Elohim, in the God Amen. The New King James translates it, the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth shall swear by the Amen Elohim, the God Amen, the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my eyes. God prophesies, God foretells of judgment upon the Jews and the inclusion of the Gentiles. Literally, he is Elohim, amen. 
God, amen. God, trustworthy. God, faithful. God, true. Faithful to his word. Faithful to his promises. True to his promises. The God, is not, God is not going to forsake his promises because Israel failed in keeping the covenant. God is not going to be faithless. God is not going to, to go back on his word. When we are faithless, he is faithful. He cannot deny himself. God is going to be faithful. He is the God, amen. All of the promises of God are yes and amen in him. He is the God trustworthy, the God faithful, the God true. The Septuagint, translating this as the God of truth, he is the one in whom all promises are fulfilled. He is the amen. Now, the question becomes then, how does he fulfill his promises? How will he fulfill his promises? He's going to fulfill his promises by the inclusion of the Gentiles. The Gentiles, through faith in the promised Messiah, through faith in God's own son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Gentiles become the seed of Abraham through faith, through faith in the Messiah. And he's going to do that by ushering in for them a glorious new creation. Look at verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. Who are the my people that God is referring to here? Those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Ethnic Jew and ethnic Gentile alike. The Gentiles now flooding into the church through faith in Jesus Christ. My people are those who put faith in my promised Messiah. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. And who is it? Who is it who has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of the eschatological new creation? Who is it? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Who is the living affirmation? Of all God's promises, the amen, Jesus Christ. Who is the living embodiment of God's own faithfulness to his word, the amen, the Lord Jesus Christ. In whom does does God fulfill all of his word, Jesus Christ, the amen, the faithful and true witness. Do you see? Revelation chapter 3 verse 14, Jesus Christ, the amen. The faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the new creation of God. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, he, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Those two, well, the second clause is explanatory of the first. Jesus Christ is the beginning, the beginning the firstborn from the dead. You see how they fit together? That in all things, he may have the preeminence. In Revelation chapter one, back there, verse five, he is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. Jesus Christ is God's amen. He is the incarnate amen, the living word It's God's amen to all that God has said, all that God has done, all that God has promised. And he says this 
He says this to a predominantly Gentile church. You see the significance of that. The Lord Jesus Christ, in referring to Isaiah 65, not only taking a name for himself, that is a name for Yahweh, for Elohim, amen, Elohim from Isaiah 65, and applying that to himself, Jesus Christ is God, (laughs) but also applying to himself, for himself, through himself, the inclusion of the Gentiles promised in Isaiah chapter 65, interpreted by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10, uh, and all of the promises that are associated with that Gentile inclusion, even the judgment upon the Jews, including the new heavens and the new earth, and saying, I am the amen. In me, Jesus Christ says, all of the promises of God find their fulfillment. I am the Lord of the church, and I'm addressing you. You see the significance of that title, the amen. It's powerful, powerful. This is how God demonstrates his faithfulness, do you see? This is how God demonstrates his faithfulness to his word. You are his people, Jesus Christ says, I am the amen. It's through Jesus Christ that God, in a supreme superlative in a magnificent way. It is through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ that God most wondrously displays his faithfulness to his word. Now, in that sense, the Lord Jesus Christ is not simply the amen. The Lord Jesus Christ is the faithful and true witness, verse 14. He is the faithful and true witness, in Isaiah, and again, these allusions to Isaiah, the Isaiah is uh, often described as the gospel of the Old Testament. Uh, Isaiah 43, verse 10, Israel was called to be God's witness to the nation, called to be his servant. So in Isaiah 43, 10, Israel was called God's faithful and true witness, called to be God's witness. Well, Israel fails. Israel rejects God for her idols, In fact, the name of God is blasphemed among the nations because of her and proves herself to be no more than a type of him who is to come, the true servant, the true witness, the faithful and true witness. It's almost as though the Lord Jesus Christ was saying this in contrast to Israel. In contrast to Israel, Jesus says, I am the faithful, the true witness. Jesus Christ, by contrast, is the promised messianic servant, the faithful and true witness. Faithful and true, a contrast again to unbelieving Israel. And then finally, in verse 14, Jesus Christ is the beginning of the creation of God. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, we read that. He is the firstborn over all creation. Doesn't mean that he was born in that sense or created in that sense. He is the prototakos. That's the word that's being used there. He is the inheritor. The prototakos was not necessarily chronologically born first. And because he is the prototakos does not mean that he is a created being. It means that he was positionally preeminent, supreme. It does not mean that he was the first created being. The Bible is clear, clear that all things were created by him. John chapter 1 verse 1, without him, nothing was made that was made. The only ones who believe that, that he is the first of 
created things are proven heretics. Stop following the ignorance of foolish, depraved men and start following the Bible. The second person of the Trinity was not created, but he is the one who holds preeminence over all created things. He is the prototakos. In similar fashion, it's in a similar fashion that God refers to David, Psalm 89, as the firstborn. He refers to David as his prototakos, the highest of the kings of the earth. David wasn't the firstborn of the sons in the house of Jesse. But God says of David, Psalm 89, he is my prototokos, prototokos. He is my firstborn. And explains that statement in Psalm 89 as he is the highest of the kings of the earth. David was given preeminence. Israel was God's prototokos or firstborn son in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. And although there were many nations that existed prior to Israel, Israel was given the preeminence. Jesus Christ was not created. Jesus Christ was given ultimate preeminence. He is the prototokos. But here in Revelation 3, he is the beginning of the creation of God. In other words, he is also the RK. That's the word that's being used there. RK can be translated beginning or ruler. Here it applies to both. He is the RK, the beginning or the ruler of the creation of God. As the eschatological first fruits of the new creation, Jesus Christ is first. He is the beginning of the new creation of God. He is the prototokos of the new creation. He is the arche, the one who inaugurated and the one who began and the one who rules over the new creation of God. There were others who had been raised from the dead, weren't there, before Jesus Christ. Others who had been raised from the dead, but none were raised like Jesus raised as the first fruits of the new creation, never to die again. Lazarus raised from the tomb. And you could almost get the impression that Lazarus is like, oh, in one sense, because he's going to have to do it all over again. Jesus Christ raised never to die again, never to die again. The beginning of the beginning, the prototokos, the the arche of the creation, the new creation of God. Uh, Thus, Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, refers to Christ as the Arche, the beginning and the prototakos. The Arche and the prototakos, the firstborn from the dead. So that the purpose of those two uh, significations or uh, those two names, those two titles, is so that in all things he may have the preeminence. The ruler of the consummated eschatological kingdom, the ruler over the age to come, that age having been inaugurated and pressing into this age at the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. Revelation chapter 21, verse five, the one who sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. Incidentally, when do we celebrate the new creation? There is a creation, and there is new creation, and we celebrate the new creation that was inaugurated by the Lord Jesus Christ in his resurrection from the dead. When do we celebrate the new creation? In worship, every Lord's Day. Every Lord's Day. On the first day of the week, the day that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, the beginning of the new creation of God, 
right? We worship, we celebrate, we praise him as the beginning of the new creation of God. Just as God completed his work of creation and rested, the seventh day set aside as one day in seven to rest after the old creation, Jesus Christ completed his work of new creation and rested. Now the first day set aside as the one day in seven to rest after the work of new creation. Why the first day? Because that was the day in which Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. His work completed. It is finished. It is accomplished. Jesus Christ now raised from the dead. It was the day that he entered, so to speak, his rest. And we now rest on the first day. It's called our Sabbath rest. That's why there is a Christian Sabbath and why dispensationalists who don't hold to a Christian Sabbath are so mistaken. The Christian Sabbath points forward forward to an eschatological rest that we will inherit with him, but we celebrate a rest every Lord's Day pointing forward. This rest is typological of that rest. We now rest on the first day, the Lord's Day, in anticipation of of entering that rest with him in the age to come. Hebrews chapter 4 Verse 8, for if Joshua, under the old covenant, if Joshua had given them rest, then he, God, would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. Why? Because God has spoken of another day. For he, Jesus Christ, who has entered his rest, has himself also ceased from his work as God ceased from his Verse 11, therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall. It's beautiful, isn't it? How God, in infinite wisdom, weaves together this redemptive historical plan. From Genesis to Revelation, it is magnificent, wondrous, right? Revelation chapter three, verse 14. These things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. He is our Lord, the amen of God, the faithful and true witness of God, the one who has been given ultimate preeminence, the exalted one, the arche, the ruler over the new creation, the kingdom consummated in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells, the one who is head over all things to the church and is with her to the end of the age. The one who cares for her in her suffering. The one who exhorts and encourages and corrects and instructs and rebukes and calls her to repentance for her good. Brothers and sisters, let us hold fast to him. He is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the new creation of God. Let us hold fast our confidence in him, firm to the end. Cast off apathy. In any way, we find ourselves to resemble, in any way, the church at Laodicea. Let us cast off our apathy. Let us cast off lukewarm devotion. Our arche the captain of our salvation who has gone before us, he is the one who strengthens us. He has gone before us in tribulation. He has gone before us in suffering. He endured under the thlipsis, under the pressure, who for the joy set before him endured the shame of the cross. He is the one who protects us. He is the one who 
preserves us. Amen? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and we thank you for the tremendous grace that is poured out in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. It is immeasurable and infinite, unfathomable, especially, Lord, considering our own sin. But we rejoice and revel in what you have done, exult in your promises to us and rejoice that all those promises are not left to be fulfilled according to our own faithfulness, but left fulfilled and accomplished in the one who is faithful and true, in the amen of God, the one who is the beginning of the new creation of God. We rejoice that it is accomplished by him, in him, through him, and to him and for him. And may it be to your everlasting praise and worship. We thank you, Lord. Help us to persevere. Strengthen us, Lord, to endure. And Lord, I'm concerned that in many ways our generation is just like that area in the Lycus Valley, there around Laodicea in the first century, extraordinarily wealthy, and shamefully lukewarm. It's so easy, Lord, to take our leisure. Help us to be fervent, zealous, faithful, earnest, devoted servants of our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen us by your spirit, Lord, to take the light that you revealed to us. Meditate on that such that it produces heat in our heart and mind uh, for you and Employ us, Lord. Set us to work in your vineyard. And for the glory of your name, make us fruitful branches. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.